Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for being uh, with us. If you're listening in real time today, yes, it's Friday. We're getting set for a big weekend here in Georgia for a couple reasons. Number one, we're kind of sandwiched in between two enormous sporting events. Last night, Atlanta United won the second leg of the, uh, their battle against uh, the Red Bulls, and they are now playing in a week for the championship of, uh, of Major League Soccer, so we're excited about them. And one of our uh, panelists here today, Brian Robinson, is excited because he, tomorrow afternoon, will be in Mercedes-Benz Stadium watching your Bulldogs against yes. Alabama in the SEC Finals Championship game. Yes, and I, um, you know, I'm 11 months into my recovery from the national championship game, so <laughs> I'm either going to be fully recovered tomorrow, or I'm going to have another year of severe well, heartache. Uh, uh, we wish you well tomorrow, uh, you, Brian. A, a big uh, couple of days in sports here in and Georgia. Then, you know, and then Elton John is playing you know, across the lawn tonight too. So a uh, big, big crowds all the way around. Exciting. Very yeah. good. Uh, so uh, that is Brian Robinson. You know him as a frequent panelist on the show. He was uh, communications director for Governor Nathan Deal during Governor Deal's first term in office. And he's now doing strategic work, consulting both in political uh, campaigns and also on what are you, public affairs? Uh, public affairs communications, yep. Okay, and across uh, from uh, Brian in the studio today, Loretta Lepore, a uh, Republican who worked in Sonny Purdue's first, uh, uh, we, did you work for him for all eight years? No, I was just first term. the first term. His press secretary when Governor Purdue was in Correct. office here. And you've gone on to do public affairs work and some Republican consulting, I guess. Yes, I have done some campaign work and I have also run for office. That's right. Ran for the legislature in 2014. 14. That experience was instructive. It was enlightening. <laughs> <laughs> Next but, to you, but an all-around good experience, yeah. in all honesty. Next to you, um, Caesar Mitchell. He was the president of the Atlanta City Council, of course, and uh, he ran for mayor and uh, knows what it's like to work hard to win an election and come up a little bit short. Thank you for being here. Yeah, and running from office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited about tomorrow. I think the Bulldogs are going to take the game. I think we're going to beat Bama, I think it's time. You know, it's funny. Uh, we talk on this show a lot about uh, 538, Nate Silver's terrific website for politics. Mm -hmm. But it's also a great website for sports because those guys really know sports inside out. And they have a piece that they put up on their uh, site today saying, here's how Georgia can beat Alabama and declaring them to be a very dangerous underdog. So we'll see how that turns out. Nothing would make me happy. <laughs> <laughs> Caesar's right. Caesar's a good, good dog, and and we are due. Uh, the, the time is it's time. I think it's better for college football for Georgia to win. Frankly, this that's selfish. I know, but people are kind of tired of seeing Bama win everything. Yeah. All right. Uh, by the way, we have an empty chair here for the time being. Michael Owens, the Democrat, the chair of the Democratic Party of Cobb County, is on his way to us. He's running a little bit late. When he gets here, we will sneak him in. Uh, by the way, Brian, you know we like to strive for balance on this show in all things politics. Yeah. Uh, we have no balance whatsoever in terms of tomorrow's SEC champion. Game. We don't want anyone from Alabama no. trying to counter your hopes for tomorrow. All right, let's get started on the business of the day. We are in the final day of early voting, Loretta, uh, in, in the runoff elections that will that are pitting uh, Republican Brad Raffensperger uh, against John Barrow for Secretary of State, an important race, and then the PSC election, uh, Chuck Eaton uh, facing off against. Um, Lindy Miller, the Democrat, mm -hmm. Chuck, of course, Eaton being the incumbent. And I wanted to just share with people the early numbers we've got from George, the Georgia Votes website. 279,755 people have cast ballots. Um, that's compared to, and this isn't really much of a comparison, at this point in early voting, 
in the November 6th race, it was they were at 641,000. But hard to compare the two since this is a runoff. Nevertheless, with that in mind, the demographics are of interest. And I'm going right. to read them to you and ask all of you to weigh in. White votes, 69 percent. African-American, 23 percent. Older voters from the ages of 50 and 65 and above represent like 86 percent of the vote. What does that suggest to you as we head toward the election next Tuesday? Well, just based on demographics, yeah. it, would, it would lean Republican. And I can validate that because I voted yesterday and I counted the 10 folks ahead of me and they were all women, um, most of them over 65, two African-American women who were younger than myself. I thought it was interesting there were no men in line ahead of me, but then when I turned around, there were two behind me. So, uh, and there was a line. So um, people are turning out for this runoff, probably at a higher rate than in previous runoffs. Yeah. Um, but it's not fair to characterize it because in the general election, we had three weeks of early voting. We right. only have one here. And so it's, it's right. not a fair comparison. Right. It's Plus, it is a runoff, right. Caesar, And we right. don't ever expect in a runoff to have anywhere near the interest yeah. or the energy around getting people to the polls that we do in a, in a general election. Yeah. You know, I think the demographics you're seeing in the runoff are consistent with what you see in the past. I mean, mm -hmm. older voters tend to go back out. They are mm -hmm. consistent voters, and they are very religious about it, and I think that's what you're seeing now. Uh, I think it is not altogether surprising. Uh, it's not good for Democrats. I think you are you hit the nail on the head, but we've got to continue to to just watch and see what happens on Election Day. It, it, Caesar, while, while the ball is in your court, um, do you believe that the Abrams uh, folks have energized around getting voters to the polls for John Barrow and Lindy Miller as they did in t turning out their voters. Uh, and they did a tremendous job in turning out their voters uh, in, in, in the early November in the general election. I don't get the sense that the energy has, has come from them this time around, but I may be very wrong about that. Well, the resources are there. The resources have been put there, but I think the energy uh, is a reflection of where the electorate is, and I think it's a reflection of what we've seen happen, or what we saw happen over the first two weeks, essentially, after the general election. There was a lot of uh, question uh, about the election and, and whether or not uh, Stacey Abrams was going to make the runoff. And mm -hmm. I think there's still a lot of, there was a lot of energy around that. And I think when it ultimately, ultimately became clear that she was not going to be in the runoff, I think that took a, a lot of wind out of, out of the cell. Um, and I think that's just being real. That's just being honest. Yeah. Brian, why is it that Republicans tend to show up in runoffs more than Democrats? At least that's the conventional wisdom. You know, I don't, I've never heard a really good explanation on why that is. I just know the Republicans are much more reliable voters. I mean, as I've heard many of my Democrats say, Georgia is a uh, state that's purple demographically and red politically. And that's that edge is solely because Republicans are better at turnout than, than Democrats are. Now, obviously, the Democrat, the, I'm sorry, the demographic change is happening so swift now that that Republican advantage is closing. And so I think 2018 will be seen as the last year where Republicans had a built-in advantage. I think Democrats will have one in two years yeah. because it's moving that fast. But Chuck Eaton and Raffensperger, Brad Raffensperger, should have good days on Tuesday because Republicans are better at turning out in runoffs. And there's no uh, charismatic uh, minority at the top of the ticket to churn out African-American vote uh, in this state, and that's critical for Democrats in Georgia is to have African-American turnout up around 29, 30, 31 percent, and when they're not getting anywhere near that. And so it looks like Chuck and Brad not only will win, but will win comfortably. I don't want, I don't want to, like, discourage anybody from going to vote. They still need to go vote. But, you know, not having a, mar a minority on that ticket is a huge problem for John Barrow and Lindy Miller. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a today problem. I think you hit the nail on the head. I really do believe that in a couple of years, uh, you're going to see, again, a different demographic voting and voting in runoffs. I think it's consistent. I mean, you know, older people vote more in runoffs than younger people. Uh, and as younger people get older, I think you're going to see uh, the demographics change in terms of who shows up in runoffs. I think Caesar probably answered the uh, Bill's question, original question, like why do Republicans have an advantage? Because Older, most older voters in Georgia are Republicans, mm -hmm. and it's, th it's not so much partisan as it is age. Mm -hmm. And so 
older people are retired, they have more free time, they can go early vote, they can show up on election day, whatever. It's something to do for yeah. them. If you're a mom who's, or, or a dad juggling work and kids at soccer and making dinner, it's a lot harder. Um, Loretta, it's interesting. We just got a Facebook Live post. Uh, by the way, it, it, you can watch us right now if you're not on Facebook Live at GPB. Uh, news's page on Facebook. And by the way, if you are watching us there, you'll notice we're on our TV set uh, today uh, because we just thought this was a, a crowd that deserved a <laughs> TV uh, kind of setting. Um, so anyhow, uh, Loretta, Cindy Simpson says, just came from voting at Roswell East Library. Parking lot was full. There was a line, very mixed crowd, every demographic. So her experience a little different than the one you described right, right. yesterday. I voted in Buckhead at the Buckhead Library. Yeah, uh, Michael Owens, you're here. We're so glad you're here. I'm here. I'll go. Chairman of the Democratic Party of Cobb County, just re-elected to that position. Thank you for being here with us of today, course. Michael. Happy to be here. Um, we've started talking about the uh, early voting and, and the fact that it seems to be right now uh, favoring demographically. It, fe it feels like it favors Republicans. But let's talk a little bit about this Secretary of State's race. You know, it, it strikes me, um, Michael, that because there has been such enormous focus, not just here in Georgia, but around the country on, on Georgia's election practices, that you would think this race would be enormously important uh, to, to voters to get them out to the polls. Um, and let's talk about the differences between Raffensperger and Barrow in terms of uh, some of these things. Barrow wants to, and you'll correct me if I've got this wrong, but Barrow's position is that as Secretary of State, he would like to see his office be much more engaged in helping establish guidelines for the entire state in terms of things like how we process uh, absentee ballots, provisional ballots, that sort of thing. Whereas Raffensperger has been saying, I think it's up to us to empower counties to do a better job of voting. Yeah, Talk about I, this. I, I think, um, and, and that is a reality. It's a reality we're facing where it's kind of like, where do you point the finger at, right? We know that there's an issue um, that we have, whether it's funding, whether it's with policies and procedures, about whether elections are how it's handled uh, and the way they go about it. So, you know, I like Barrow's approach that, you know, this has to come from the Secretary of State's office. And I think, you know, from the past work that we've seen with, um, with Brian Kemp, it's been at least a, a calling card to say we can do better and we should do better. And the question to me is where does the buck stop? Now, we know that there is a funding issue, right, and that funding is driven through the county commissioners and they're then, again, locally at the county level. So we need to have the funding and, and the operational expertise at the county level, but the overall guidance and direction has to come from the Secretary of State's office. Well, I, I think uh, there are several issues. I, I wish that we could have a serious, robust debate on what we need to change in Georgia during the Secretary of State's race. And I don't think that that's really happened. I don't know whether the candidates have tried or not, but I know that I haven't seen it. But I did hear on uh, a recent debate between Raffensperger and Barrow uh, the issue of ranked voting, which Barrow came out in favor of. And and I actually am wildly in favor of this because, <laughs> I, because, I'm, a, because I'm, a, I'm a fiscal conservative, and it takes out the runoffs, which cost taxpayers millions of dollars. And look at all the bureaucratic hassle we're having, doing the turnaround with the absentee ballots and early voting, you know, in this short, compact period, which has been shortened even further by, by Democratic uh, lawsuit abuse. And <laughs> some truth to that. Um, but I would love to see us go to a ranked voting system. System. And I would like to see the candidates have a more robust debate on how we can make things better. Obviously, we need new voting machines. We have amongst the oldest in the entire country. But we don't need to stop there. We need to do a lot of things better. Yeah, I'm going to jump back in here because to go back to your question, Bill, I am surprised the fact that election integrity, you know, protecting voters' information, personal information, has not been a stable, right, of this election and has not been screamed very loudly from both left and right. Now, I understand I may be a little bit biased, right, coming from the IT and, and cyber world, but but this is an inherent threat to everyone. It doesn't just impact Democrats or Republicans. Um, the fact that, you know, these old machines, as Brian talked about, isn't something that affects just Republicans or just Democrats. It affects us all. So that, first of all, but no, I'm not a huge supporter of, uh, of the ranked voting <laughs> simply because <laughs> I, right. yeah. I, I'll leave it at that. Well, no, let's explain 
if we can, as easily as possible, what ranked voting is. Anybody else want to take a shot at it? Just explain, okay. then I'll, I'll jump in. Well, okay. So ranked voting yeah, I mean, just yeah, is, is quite appeal. simple. Everyone, Democrat and Republican, appears on the same ballot together, uh -huh. right? And uh, you, you essentially have an instant runoff. Yes, that's right. The person who comes in first, if they don't have over 50% of the vote, you go to the second person. You eliminate all the people who are below the top two spots, or do you go further than that? Here's the simplest way to say it. It's like, <laughs> let's say there are five candidates, which never okay. are. Georgia, it's, always, Thank it's, you. it's always three. And you do my favorite candidate, my second favorite, right. and my, and my right. third, third favorite. favorite. So Thank that, you. It, it's a, right. it, it, so that way, if you don't have a majority the first time, you go to the second choice. And what else it does, and I, look, I'm in political communications to some degree, and I have been part of the toxicity of political campaigns. I have said the mean, nasty things about people. Not you, Brian. Same one you, It's actually one of the very few skills that I have. Uh, I think anyone who covered the first term of Nathan Deal would agree that Brian Robinson could be a nasty guy when it I came to communication. I am part of the problem. So if you want to fix people like me, yeah. go to ranked voting because it changes the incentive. So I don't want to alienate the supporters of my opponent. Yeah. Okay. So you'd be nicer. Right. Wouldn't that be great? Right. If, I, we, if we were a little more civil? Yeah. The fact that uh, Brian was able to explain rank voting uh, gives him the right to now be the host of this show. If he did it better than I could. All right. But let's move on. All right. So, so but this is a bit beside the point, Loretta. We, we have two candidates who've been very clear in the Secretary of State's race. One says the state has to really take charge and make sure there are uniform rules and, and procedures that are followed by all counties. And the other says, no, this is good that counties have their own uh, control over elections. We just need to enable them to do a better job of it. We need better training, that sort of thing. That's a very clear distinction for voters to be able to look at when they go to the polls. It is. I don't know that voters are seeing that distinction. Well, because there hasn't been much attention focused right. on the race. Right. So there's, you know, there hasn't haven't been multiple debates, so to speak, even in the general election. There was only well, one Raffensperger debate. didn't come to the Republican Secretary of State right. to the debate for Secretary of State right. that happened but, last this last week. And there hasn't been a lot of news coverage of this particular right. race, especially right. in the general, because there was such a pronounced mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. governor's race that I, I think probably a lot of voters don't know. I mean, they voted, obviously, in the general election, but because most voters voted by by ticket, yeah. they voted, you know, whole, they just went down Republican. We know, like, 5 percent of the electorate um, actually maybe crossed right. in, in this in this general election, right? So people went in and they said, I'm voting Democrat or I'm voting Republican, and maybe didn't take as close a look at some of the down ticket races as they should have. And so and I think that's part of the apathy we see in the in the. In I the think runoff. that's probably right. But, you know, Caesar, there's another interesting distinction between these two candidates as well. Uh, uh, you know, we're now looking, as we know, as there's a commission that's looking at what to do about voting machines and producing a paper trail in Georgia. We're going to expecting that by the next legislative session, we'll see a report out on, on what the commission wants to do. But you have Barrow arguing we should vote on paper. Mm -hmm. And the paper should be fed into an optical reader of some sort, whereas Raffensperger says, no, no, let's use these electronic machines, these touchscreen machines, and then let, but let's make sure they produce a paper trail. And, and one reason that Barrow is emphasizing his uh, 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 way of doing this is that he believes it's not hackable. Mm. Well, I, I think, you know, well, first of all, I think the fact that uh, these are down ballot races uh, really just kind of put in the ink quite frankly, the fact that they would not be able to kind of rise to the top during the general. So people really don't understand the races. They don't understand the candidates. That's just the fact of the matter. There are not enough resources and really ha hasn't been enough time, quite frankly, over the last couple of weeks to even bring them up to the surface. But with that being said, I think to the extent uh, that the electorate can understand that the Secretary of State's office handles elections and understand that we really have a question of, of reform versus no reform. Uh, that's before us, then I think, you know, if you're with more reform, then you might, you know, favor Barrow. If you're with less reform, measured reform, you might go for Raffensperger. And I think that's the real question that's got to be asked here uh, by the electorate, by the voters. And I'm not sure that that's even kind of clear enough 
uh, for voters to make a decision. So I think it's just going to boil down to, again, partisan voting. That's yeah. my personal it's opinion. It's all tribal. Yeah. You know, everything is so nationalized that a lot of the issues that really do matter when it comes to the lives of Georgians, like statewide elected officials impact our lives directly every day. They really do. And in a way that you remember, <clears throat> Congress doesn't, frankly. And when with many of these issues, we we simply don't know much about what they do. And mm -hmm. that's why you hear people running for secretary of state or PSC talking about being pro-life or pro-choice or pro-gun or anti-gun, because you're appealing to tribe, not to issue. Um, Michael, you know, let's go just briefly to the PSC race before we have to take a break. There you've got the incumbent Republican Chuck Eaton facing Democrat Lindy Miller. Um, it strikes me that in some ways, Voters have to be there's a little more subtle difference between the two of them a little bit in that At one point we sort of thought it was possible that the candidates for that race You, you might have an outsider challenging an incumbent saying I'm tired of the fact these incumbents keep voting to fund plant the expansion of plant Vogel It's gotten to be ridiculously expensive. I'm running to stop that continued fund. That isn't where Lindy Miller's coming from. Chuck Eaton does support the expansion, but so does Lindy Miller. The difference is she says, I don't think the cost should be passed on to consumers, and Chuck Eaton so far has voted in favor of making sure that Georgia Power can recoup many of its expenses from customers. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you're talking about a, a down-ballot race that many people don't know anything about, it is mm -hmm. PSC, right? Just to <laughs> explain that, I mean, most voters, I don't think, uh, even know what the acronym stands for. So, you know, the Public Service Commission is a very important role. Um, I think there are differences, clear differences between Lindy Miller and, um, and Chuck Eaton, but the, the clear one, obviously, is where Plant Vogel lies. Um, and I do think I, I like the position that Lindy took is the same one that I've said in the past is that, you know, this has probably been arguably one of the most mismanaged projects on the face of the planet. Um, and, and the idea that we keep moving this along, it can can be very challenging. But the fact to say that ratepayers should continue to pay for this upon the mismanagement and, and the overruns they've had is, I think, a clear distinction. Um, you know, the fact that Chuck Eden being someone that's on the board, you know, you can question about whether the fact that the, the current board is holding the people accountable that's actually spending the ratepayers' money. So that's where I think the key difference is in this race. Loretta, you would think that might be a pretty compelling reason to get people out to the polls to uh, make a choice of whether they want to keep paying for plant vogel exp uh, expansions or not and yet again it's not getting a lot of attention no but i think this is one of those issues where voters would have to ha feel some pinch right, right? they'd have mm -hmm. to feel some economic pinch um that that would drive them yeah. to vote and maybe and they're not feeling that right now so i think i think in a broad way they understand plant vogel they understand what's going on with plant vogel but it's not hitting them in the pocketbook mm -hmm. um right now anyway you know it's interesting um uh, uh, caesar Brian said something a couple of minutes ago that leads me into exactly the other thing I wanted to talk about in terms of this PSC race. You talked about uh, it's all tribal. It's all based on what we think about nationally in terms of whether we're a conservative or a liberal or whatever. Chuck Eaton, in, in this runoff campaign, did something really unusual. He came out declaring he is a pro-life public service commission candidate. And the question, of course, is, what the heck does that have to do with the PSC? But it, it goes to Brian's point in many ways. So he's running a campaign. He's, he's not the public service, public safety commission. In other right. words, it, it doesn't matter what he's running for. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I mean, it's all about, can I, I'm running a campaign trying to get more votes, yeah. and I'm trying to get people to mm -hmm. vote for me. Uh, you know, if, if he can, you know, show up with a, a dog that has a space cap on, and that's going to get more voters, he'll do that. That's yeah. where we are right now. I, I yeah. do wonder if that was a response uh, to, I think you mentioned on the show the other day, uh, Loretta, one of the interesting things about this race is that uh, Lindy Miller has gotten Tea Party support, of all things. Right. Uh, Debbie Dooley. Debbie group. Dooley. Mm -hmm. I sort of wonder if uh, this is a way to say to all the other Tea Party folks out there, hey, I'm your guy because I'm pro-life. Pro that was an odd well, 
Go ahead. Well, go ahead. Debbie Dooley's interests are a little different in that. Well, I understand that. Know, I'm not talking she, about her as much as the people who used to be followers of that particular Tea right, Party movement. Right. And so, but and but the Tea Party, let's remember, was about fiscal responsibility, right, not right. necessarily about social issues. Okay. So it wasn't necessarily appealing to her or to Tea Party okay. individuals per se. Um, but then there's also this coalition of solar. She represents the solar industry. So yes. you know we need to be very cognizant follow of follow the money. Yes, <laughs> where things are coming from. Well, following the money. There's been a lot of attention lately, uh, Brian, to the fact that Chuck Eaton has gotten more than a million dollars from pro-nuclear energy uh, PACs across the country. There's, that's a lot of money for a down-ballot race, and there are people who wonder why that's all happening. Oh, man. All the Democrats are just so outraged by this third-party spending <laughs> that vastly advantaged them in the general election. Now, all of a sudden, it's dark money. Now, all of a sudden, it's these nefarious forces. Come on. Give me a break. And as far as, and I, I, I want to go to that, but I also want to address the pro-life thing. Uh, the, here's the thing. The Republicans are held to this standard, and Democrats aren't. Uh, the Republicans uh, do have to appeal to pro-life voters. That is part of the coalition, part of the tribe. But... Lindy Miller was endorsed by Emily's List, whose one criterion for mm -hmm. getting the endorsement is being a pro-choice woman. <laughs> so what's the difference, right? I mean, if anything, it's a tit-for-tat with what she's doing with the Democratic base. Yes, there are interests coming in for Chuck, for Chuck Eaton. They are not coming to him. It is a third-party group that is separate from him. He has right. no control over that right. spending. But Lindy Miller on nuclear wants to have it both ways. You know, Michael said he agrees with her position. Her position is to not be serious about it. No, her position. Well, I, I'm yeah. not going to argue her it's position, not, Michael. Because, because you you either pay for Vogel or you don't get Vogel. And the PSC, including Chuck Eaton, voted to make Southern Company absorb $700 million in cost to their shareholders. There, there is some of that going on. Right, right. Okay. So, Michael, number one, I thought that uh, Brian just did a very deftly uh, moved away from the issue that there has been more than a million dollars spent to help Chuck Eaton get elected by a nuclear interest. Of course, Democrats got a ton of dough from uh, third parties, from PACs during the general. No question about that. But as we look at this race specifically, it is fascinating so much money is coming to him. It is. And look, let's, let's not pretend that this dark money, light money, whatever color or shade of money it is, it comes in the races and it comes on both sides. So as soon as someone starts saying, oh my God, there's money coming over here or over there, the thing behind it is to see where the money's coming in, where it's coming from, and why is it coming in there. So if you look at this race in particular and you wonder why the money's coming in there, it's obvious. You look back, it's a nuclear group. Um, you know, Vogel is still in play. It's the, it's the, it is the premier issue of this race. So um, there is concern that, that Lindy, you know, will not be as friendly to the Vogel operation as a whole. Um, but again, if you go back to her position on it, it's about the management and the fact that ratepayers have been paying. It's not like we're, we're asking ratepayers to start paying for it. They've been paying for this for this mismanagement for years. So the fact of um, where Lindy has taken this position and saying, we need to stop that, right? And we can no longer accept that. All right. I got to pause everything because I'm way late in getting a break into the show. So let me do that right now. This is Political Rewind. We'll be back in a moment. Think about all the time you've spent with GPB during 2018 and what these moments mean to you. As you support the organizations that matter to you during this season of giving, I hope you'll include GPB. Before the year comes to a close, do your part to keep GPB strong in the year ahead. Go to gpb.org and click Donate to make your tax-deductible year-end gift or call 800-222-4788. From all of us at GPB, thank you for your support and happy holidays. Glad to have you all back for uh, Political Rewind. Loretta Lepore, Cesar Mitchell, uh, 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 Brian Robinson, and Michael Owens are with us at the table today. If you're watching us on Facebook Live, uh, you'll see we're in the TV studio. Why? Just because we like being here. We are not on the air this Sunday at 9 o'clock, as we often are. And I do want to give you a, a one heads up. Starting after the first of the year, the, the TV version of Political Rewind is going to start airing on Friday nights 
uh, right after news hour as well as Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. So we'll hope that you'll join us uh, to see the show on TV on Friday evenings as well as Sunday morning. Hmm. All right, um, let me move forward and talk about a story that comes to us, Loretta, out of Washington, which is pretty interesting, really. Um, it, the, um, both the Democrats and Republicans, of course, have been in caucus and Republican right. conference meeting to choose their leaders uh, for the upcoming session. I think it's the 116th session of Congress coming up in January. And uh, Doug Collins out of Gainesville got a very important position, which he had to fight for harder than maybe he thought he might uh, because uh, he well, first, let me say what it is. He is going to be the ranking member on the House Judiciary Committee. Correct. He was the leading candidate until Ohio's Jim Jordan, a really conservative Republican and big Trump supporter, uh, expressed some interest in that position. The president weighed in and said Jordan ought to have the job. But even with the president's endorsement, uh, it appeared clear that Doug Collins had it wrapped up. And so Jim Jordan dropped out. What's the significance of of uh, Doug Collins having that job when we move to a Democratic-controlled House. Well, congratulations to Doug Collins yeah. and uh, and to Drew Ferguson for earlier. And Became the, the chief whip for right, the Republican minority. We kind of didn't give him his due earlier this week <laughs> when we talked about that. Um, so I, I think it's important because we're going to see a lot of activity when the Democrats take over in the House. And there's going to be quite a bit of inquiry. Um, subpoenas, um, all kinds of activity toward, directed toward the White House. And I think Doug Collins is a very, in my experience working with him here, is a very level-headed individual, whereas Jim Jordan, um, a member of the Freedom Caucus, um, you know, he's been a little more infla inflammatory, for lack of a better word, during the, this, this session. And um, he is an ardent supporter of the president's. And so Doug Collins, I think, in the new environment will be a steady hand uh, for Republicans, but will also be seen as more neutral. Um, so more reasoned, responsive in this time when Republicans are going to have to have somebody that's going to be able to counteract whoever the Democratic leadership of that committee is going to be um, and be thoughtful, be articulate uh, as these processes um, move forward. Yeah, uh, but of course, if there's going to be an impeachment effort in the new Congress, uh, Caesar, it'll start in the Judiciary Committee. It will. And I think, to Loretta's point, I think she's absolutely correct. I think, you know, for Democrats, maybe it's not such a good thing to have Doug Collins as the ranking member, because if Doug Collins comes to you and says, let's have a real conversation, then if you're a reasonable person, you're going to do that. But someone else who's a firebrand, you're like, no, let's just duke it out. And so I think right now having, you know, someone like Doug Collins in that position uh, probably will allow for some more reasonable conversations and Democrats will tend, as we always do, listen and hear, hear arguments on both sides. Uh, but it's going to be a lot of activity and I think you're going to see a very active Democratic Congress starting with the Judiciary Committee and, I, and you know, there's been no commitment around uh, pursuing impeachment, but there's a lot of activity and a lot of aggressive actions that can be taken uh, short of impeachment. Yeah, um, you know, Brian, uh, there's already been, we expect that uh, Jerry Nadler of New York is going to become the judiciary chairman when Democrats finally pick their committee leaders. And he and Doug Collins have already had a go-round back and forth. Uh, yeah. uh, Nadler uh, has made it clear that he's going to pursue investigations yeah. that involve the president and his family. We don't have to read his quote, but let's read what Doug Collins said. Collins said to him, a House majority doesn't give liberals license to chase political vendettas at deep cost and no benefit to the hardworking Americans who trust us to honor the law first by following it ourselves. So what's interesting about that is that while Democrats will have the power and the votes to do whatever they want, not they're going to do it all, this is going to be a battle for the hearts and minds of the American people in this next session, and that's where Collins is uh, drawing a line right now. That's right, and Doug is a longtime friend of mine. He was our floor leader in the governor's office when he was he uh, state representative from Gainesville. So great guy. I'm so proud of him, and he's going to be a great voice for Georgia up there. But the fact is, in the House of Representatives, majority rules everything. A majority of one is absolute power. So Jerry Nadler's going to have a lot more power than Doug Collins right. for the next two years. And 
Doug's role, therefore, is not so much as a legislator, you know, he's not going to be determining the committee agendas. He's going to be in a much more of a responsive crouch than what he has been in the majority. And so his battle is going to be a messaging battle, mm -hmm. a communications battle. Right. It's going to be about calling out the Democrats when they go too far, when they overplay their hand, which, it, you know, I think Nancy Pelosi is going to have a fight on her hands to keep her caucus sane, because there is a, a and not to say the Republican caucus is sane, and we, we you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say something crazy like that. Both have their, their have their insane caucus, but Pelosi's going to have a hard time corralling the angry sector of her of her caucus because they are going to want to investigate and subpoena and make wild accusations all day, every day. And they would be much better served by letting Mueller be the bad guy, let Mueller go and do that because he looks independent, and for them to come forward with ideas that are popular with Americans, particularly health care reform. They have a real opening on health care, and Republicans don't have a good answer, something that I've been saying internally in my party for a long time. We don't have a serious or good answer on health care, and Democrats are missing an opportunity if they, if they don't exploit that. Um, mm. Michael, uh, we should say that many, many Democrats are expressing a lot of restraint in terms of whether or not they're going to immediately launch an impeachment uh, uh, proceeding against President Trump. But they certainly have made it clear that in, 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 in oversight committee, mm -hmm. in judiciary, in any number of committees, they're going to begin investigating the president. So just in terms of judiciary itself, I think uh, Brian makes a good point. Doug Collins' job is going to be to communicate the Republican message and hope to win support from Georgians, from people right. out there across the country. Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple of areas there. And shout out to uh, Congressman Hank Johnson, who's going to oversee the subcommittee, which, in, which takes care of the judiciary, which yep. looks at the judiciary. Yes. So, so I do believe there will be a lot of activity, shall we say, going on. Um, and, and, you know, the Democratic Party is a party that's a, that's a broad spectrum of, of, of minds. So, um, so I expect there to be some parts of the party that's really going to push. Um, but I expect the large majority of the party to do what they, they're there to do to ensure that uh, there's checks and balances in the system and that each part of the government acts accordingly. So, you know, to, to be able to call out the president where they should, to be able to um, hold them accountable where they should is, I think, exactly the position you need to take. And that's, Nancy Pelosi has already came out and said that. Said, you know, this is not a caucus that's going to go on a, a witch hunt, to use Donald Trump's words. Um, this is not what this ca uh, caucus is about. Um, I think uh, several others, you know, have said that, you know, this is not going to be about a single-track mind to impeach Donald Trump. Um, sure, I agree with Brian. Let, let Mueller do the, the dirty work here, because it seems like he's doing a pretty good job at that as, the, as it starts to constrict around him. So, <laughs> so let, let Mueller do the work. I think there's a lot of things that we can do as Democrats in Congress, um, and I do believe health care is an area that we can. Obviously, after 478 attempts to repeal the ACA from Republicans have taken, they don't have an answer, and we should move forward. Loretta? You that. Well, I, I mean, I think Nancy Pelosi has on multiple occasions over the past week and her her office, quite candidly, have repeated that there is no intention to move forward with impeachment. And she tamped that down also during this last election yep. cycle because mm -hmm. it doesn't work in the best interest of no. Democrats. No. And she's going to be leading toward 2020. That's her goal. She's leading her caucus. She's going to get those issues that are important. She was the one that, you know, turned that they were they were running in the primary on Medicare for all. She was the one that forced the pivot to preconditions, you know, in the general election, which worked for Democrats. I agree wholeheartedly with Brian and the fact that Republicans have got to up their game on health care. They should have been talking about it more in the primary, in the general election. Um, they didn't do so. So they do need to, to figure out how they're going to pivot on that. I would say Republicans are, um, are preparing broadly to step up their communication game in this next cycle. Um, we saw Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who, you know, had a tough re-election fight, but she stepped out of leadership in the House Republican Caucus conference, which leads messaging for the party in the House. And um, Liz Ch Cheney is now in charge of that. And Liz is an excellent communicator, but she ran in the caucus on stepping up the game on communications for for the caucus. Yeah, but I um, it's, it, go ahead, finish your thought on that. 
No, so, I mean, I think that the leadership is positioning the House Republicans in a better way to have a more succinct, more effective message than they have had to date. Yeah, Liz Cheney, is a, it's interesting. We're going in a direction we hadn't even talked about ahead of time, but see, as long as we're doing it, uh, it's interesting that Liz Cheney will serve that role. She is a good communicator. She also is a is a hardline conservative. She is not someone I think we can expect, if you're a Republican, I don't think she's the kind of person you hope is going to be reaching out to a broader and more diverse array of people out there, which is what Republicans are going to need to start thinking about. And we'll talk in a second about mm -hmm. how Johnny Isaacson mm -hmm. uh, is on that uh, train right now as well. No, I, I fully agree. I think communicate when you don't have the numbers, communications is really how you can at least survive. Uh, I think, again, going back to, to Doug Collins, I, I just think his, the statement he made, if I'm a Democrat, Hearing that statement mm -hmm. uh, from someone across the aisle, I'm going to actually say, okay, well, that's a reasonable statement, versus hearing someone say, <laughs> right. make, Mar make America great again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm yeah, like, we know Jim Jordan wouldn't be <laughs> yeah. that uh, sensible in the way he would talk about so it. It really <laughs> is going to be a communications uh, game. Uh, we got to get to another break. Before we do, we talked about Pelosi. She doesn't have the votes yet. She won her nom party's nomination in a mm -hmm. closed door caucus. We've learned subsequently, she I think she got 206 votes. She needs 218. She still has a time. They won't vote on the floor until the first week of January. But while we expect she'll be speaker, she's still got some work to do to bring everybody together, Michael. And the reason I mention it is on our show on Wednesday, we said as of 2 o'clock, 2.30, we had still not heard where Lucy McBath, the newest Democrat in the Georgia delegation, stands. And late Wednesday afternoon, she tweeted out, I'm with Pelosi. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've, I've gotten tons and tons of questions about uh, where Congresswoman-elect Lucy McBath is on, on various issues and about where is she at, you know, talking with the media. But, you know, Lucy has been someone who is, who is steadfast. She is someone who is very thoughtful and insightful. So she takes her time. Um, she doesn't necessarily run out to seek the attention of media always and to the um, to the dispel of some folks that want to interview her, but um, but no doubt, um, Lucy McBath is on board with Nancy Pelosi. There's there's still others that are on board with Nancy Pelosi. Um, she has made her mark. She is, um, you know, the the most qualified person, if you will, for various reasons. And I think a lot of the talk early on, I do think of it a lot of was just for the sport of kind of talking about who could challenge her. Um, there's been no serious challenger that's really stepped forward, and that that letter of 16. Um, I think other Congress people that, that wanted to challenge her or, or did not want to support her, um, I think that was a test just to kind of see where that resistance would be met. Um, and it was not some radical left-wing conspiracy to get rid of her, right? It was just some people that potentially are looking at, you know, the speakership themselves, trying to push those boundaries a little bit and see where they are. Um, yeah. Brian, I do have to say that as I listen to Michael try to explain <laughs> why Lucy McBeth isn't answering questions from the media, that we're used to hearing Republicans be on the defensive about why their folks don't answer questions from the media. I, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and look, I, my dream, my dream, my life would be so much easier if I was a Democratic communicator because there's, there's a wink, wink, and a nod with reporters when you're a Democrat because hey, we're all in this together, right? But with, with Republicans, oh, I, I don't oh, think I don't think that's true. But go ahead. I've seen it. And it's much more confrontational. It's much more confrontational with Republicans. So I don't, I'm always baffled when Democrats don't take advantage of every media platform because it's just going to be like, oh gosh, you're so wonderful. What are you doing today? Tell us about how you're going to save America. With your Real quick, we got to get a break is, in, but real quick. There is a little bit of validity to what Brian's saying in that um, Lucy McBath has a little bit of a honeymoon period. Yeah. Right, being a new member, and she can get away with making some mistakes um, that won't be held against her for, for all that long, assuming they're small mistakes. Um, and, and it might be worth her not to squander that opportunity. Yeah. Okay, we've got to get to a break, and as we do, let me just say, Brian Robinson, we have laid out a welcome mat for you, a Republican, and an outspoken one, to be on the show regularly. So no complaints from you, my friend. Not about y'all, though. <laughs> all right. We're always straight up. I like it. That's it. <laughs> Uh, this is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. <laughs> GPB is more than radio. We provide a safe space for children to learn with PBS Kids programs, eye-opening documentaries that connect us, and resources for teachers and students. 
As you support the organizations that matter to you during this season of giving, please include GPB. Your gift will come back to you with the best in public broadcasting in the year ahead. Go to gpb.org and click Donate to make your tax-deductible year-end gift. Or call 800-222-4788. And thank you. I'm Ira Flato. This week on Science Friday, a Chinese scientist claims to have created the first gene-edited twin babies. How far is too far when it comes to gene editing? We'll discuss why the news has shocked scientists. Plus, meet a toothless whale ancestor that used suction to feed. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. This afternoon at 3 on GPB. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. A quick note here. Um, There have been some concerns that a number of counties across the state did not give voters enough opportunity to file and send in their absentee ballots in time for the December 4th election. We didn't get into that on the show today. But uh, in fact, as a result of those concerns, Robert Jimison just sent a note saying that um, apparently uh, Acting Secretary of State Crittenden is uh, offering a proposed settlement which would extend the amount of time that people can submit absentee uh, ballots. So you'll probably see that in the news, and I just wanted to at least uh, mention it right Mm -hmm. now. All right, let's talk about Johnny Isaacson. Uh, Johnny Isaacson, of course, uh, is obviously one of the state's leading uh, political uh, figures, a Republican, but a Republican who wins votes across party lines in every election. He gave an interview to the AJC the other day, um, Loretta, in which he said a couple of interesting things. One thing he said was, we're a growth state, so you've got to expect as a Republican you're going to have a growth in the electorate, and if you're going to win, you better cater to your electorate, which is what a lot of our guys didn't do. He's talking, of course, about the fact that suburban Atlanta started is now feel, maybe safely Democratic, but certainly was Democratic in 2018. And then, without naming names, the AJC points out, he said that some Republicans got, quote, fat and happy in their jobs and didn't lay the groundwork necessary to win. He said Republicans ignore immigrant, Latino, and African-American communities at their own peril. Your thoughts? Well, I, I think he's has a valid point in the terms of the dynamics of the electorate in Metro Atlanta changing. That you know, that's obvious. We've seen that. We've been seeing that coming for a long time. Plus, we're seeing a tremendous amount of population growth in the state. That happens primarily in Metro. We've seen people moving into Metro from rural Georgia. Um, and so, when you're looking at a lot of relocations, people coming in from from other parts of the country, um, they may not vote like rural Georgian voters, which are traditionally and went you know, overwhelmingly for Brian Kemp in this cycle. And there was little attention paid to Metro Atlanta. Um, I don't know who he's referring to when he speaks of the fat cats. I really, I don't understand that, because really, when you look at at the casualties uh, of this election cycle, it was predominantly female Republicans that went down. Yeah, but we did hear, Michael, about about the fact that Democrats, and I think up in your area, up in Cobb, because he's talking about your county, uh, among others. Uh, we had, for the first time, you had canvassers going in to lower-income housing, going door-to-door, really papering the area in a way that I think Isaacson is suggesting Republicans didn't. Oh, I, I have no doubt about it. I mean, we, you know, we hit, we hit the ground hard, and I think we ever have before. Um, you know, and leave no stone unturned. You know, I said to the Democratic Party, and particularly I can I speak about in Cobb, is that you know we went out to to voters everywhere, right? And, and we really tried to tried to have have an appeal about certain um, set of policies and messaging that that would speak to everyone. Um, we talked to Latinos, we talked to African Americans, we went to and talked to the African immigrant communities, um, and we really went out there. So you know, I think without a doubt that is what made the difference. And and yes, I agree with with Senator Isaacson. I do believe that there were some uh, Republicans, not only in Cobb County, I think throughout the metro area, who, who led, leaned too much on their incumbent advantage, and it wasn't enough to, to overcome it. You look at, we had Rich Golick, who actually resigned, so that was an open seat, um, that we aggressively went after. He was a Republican, a long-time Republican. Republican in the House. You know, you had uh, Sam Teasley, who one could argue how much actual, you know, early campaigning that he did. I know the COP GOP tried to supplement some of that with some canvassing, but by and large, you know, we were, we were really out there working House District 
37, which we, we ultimately picked up. And then you, you saw that in other areas, too. You saw that in Gwinnett. You look at what happened in, in the 7th Congressional District race, where, you know, um, <clears throat> The Republican congressman in that race did very little campaigning and, and almost lost that race. So, you know, this, this is a good sign for Georgia overall, because it now says that in large parts of this, of this state, primarily the, uh, the metro area, you know, Republicans are going to have to actually run. You know, they have to have good candidates. They have to run races because Democrats are going to have solid candidates and we're going to go out there and compete for every seat that's available. Well, I, mm. I kind of disagree with that because, you know, I know Sam Teasley, for example, he he was door to door for months. And so and he knew he had a tough race. Um, I also know that some of the other candidates that that did not win their cycles, like Megan Hansen and Beth Beskin um, and Betty Price, they worked hard. I mean, I saw it firsthand. They worked and they were going door to door. Um, See, and, that's what let me let me yeah, if I can, because we're I running we're, short. I think where Johnny Isaacson, the one I wanted to say was not the door to door that he was referencing. He was talking about the emergence of a more influential Asian American population in Metro yeah. and mm -hmm. a growing influence of a Hispanic population in Metro Atlanta and other minority groups that are gaining an influence and voting. What and doors he's saying are they we need on? to have we need to have a better approach. Yeah, Caesar. because if we look at it the other way around, if it's just a matter of who you canvass or not, then it's not about the message. It's about just turn it, getting people yeah. and getting them out there to vote. And the message really did matter in this election. Well, it mattered, but I think, you know, when you look at the future, I think some of the issues that Republicans have tied themselves to, some of the issues that, that we hear about all the time from our, our president are issues that are, that are, I hate to say passe, issues that are not going to rule the day in five to ten years and certainly not in Georgia. And so I think you've got to figure out the messaging, but I think in lieu of that, you've got to figure out how to touch a whole new group of folks, which the Republican Party, uh, I'm not sure, is ready to do. Brian, the Republican Governors Association just uh, came back from their big winter meeting, a post-election meeting. A great many of them, including some conservative Republican governors, are saying it's Republicans had better get their message straight. And they were not particularly happy, to some extent, with the way President Trump has positioned himself and positioned the party. Well, all politics is, is local, and there's and that's what and the governor's races where Republicans won despite Trump being unpopular in their state, Maryland, Massachusetts yeah. being two of the yeah. ones that really stand out. It's because they had their own brands. They had they were they were candidates and incumbents in this case who were able to speak above that noise and. For many of these races, it's impossible to speak above the noise. You know, Karen Handel didn't get fat and happy. She worked really hard. She was a good congresswoman for the 6th Congressional District, but she got lost. She, she lost because, you know, the tribalism. And what governors have been able to do is to rise above that tribalism because executives have the ability to have their own profile. And it is really unique in politics. Legislators don't have that, that, that luxury. And that's to localize this to Georgia the opportunity and challenge for Brian Kemp, because we cannot, as a party, have an all-rural strategy. Mm -hmm. We will lose, and we will lose soon. We have got—Loretta mentioned the minority communities that are burgeoning, but college-educated white people are leaving Republicans, and that is a death sentence. All right. Mm -hmm. Brian— you bash the media, but you get the last word on this show. <laughs> That's how fair we really are. <laughs> we are completely out of time for today's Rewind. Brian Robinson, Michael Owen, Cesar Mitchell, Loretta Lapore. You've done double duty this week, and we're glad to have you here, Thank Loretta. You. Thank you all for joining us for today's show. We're back. If you're listening in real time, we're back on Monday at 2 o'clock, and we're going to have a lot to talk about, including the fact that, you know what? The conventional wisdom was that collusion was something Robert uh, Mueller would never be able to prove and all of a sudden it's really in the mix we'll talk about that and how it affects the state of georgia among other things when we see you for monday's political rewind have a great weekend everybody